why you bother with research? Who does that? I have never seen uh, interpreting studies connected with innuendo before, and I'm not sure I ever will again. What? <clears throat> if you if your data is rubbish, you just redefine the terms. But that's interpreting for a given definition of interpreting. Oh. Significant also has two meanings in academia. Ah, I like it. True. You don't need to know what that means. Very good, very good, very good. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. On today's concretization of the Pareto Principle, you know what I mean, we have our usual theoretically sound, empirically robust crew. So here we go. First up is a man who always says something significant, or a given definition of significant, Alexander Gansmeyer. Good evening, Alex. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm doing really well and I don't want to disappoint you. So that's why I actually did some research for tonight's episode and I am happy to tell you that Banging your head against a wall burns 150 calories per hour. So there is something that I'm sure you didn't know. It also makes your head flat enough that you can rest a can of Coke on it. <laughs> I mean, nothing but benefits. Do not try this at home. Yeah. Well, I was in a meeting about Brexit today. That was, that was oh. a lot of heads against. <laughs> anyway, Brexit shout out. <laughs> heads against the wall or heads between legs? I'm not sure which. All of that. Anyway, let's move on. You've heard him already. He's with us. He's been kept by a rector, but not by the Scotland football team, whatever that means. Hello, Jonathan Dunn. Hello, that was an obscure reference to the fact that while I have degrees, I have never been chosen to play football for Scotland, which is kind of, I'm not sure whether that's sad or just normal. Um, <laughs> it's kind of surprising given you had a German head coach for a while. He, he may have picked you. I don't know. Yeah, well, for for a while there was a running joke that the one qualification that you needed to get picked for Scotland was to not have been born in Scotland. <laughs> but, you know, I guess someone has to do it. Um, but, yeah, I, I was going to say um, it, it was really nice because it felt much better to be a Scot this year because we didn't even qualify for the World Cup and Germany went home really quickly. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way it is. Anyway, I'm Alexander Drexel, and I'm not going to invent anything because we didn't put anything in the, on the script in the script about myself, but that doesn't matter. Uh, let's move on straight to the topic of tonight's show, um, because what we are going to do is we will be expanding our discourse, reaching Pincus Simpsons. You need to see that again. <laughs> okay. So on tonight's show, we will be, of course, reaching synthesis and, of course, offering a critical review of a community of practice, which is what this podcast is all about, after all. <laughs> so, yes, you guessed it. We are taking on the partially accessible, for the right subscription fee, world of research, if you know what I mean. And my first <laughs> question is a very simple one. Jonathan, why bother? What's the point of research? Because you've done a little bit of research in your life, as far as I can tell. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get over that, if you know what I mean. I have never seen uh, interpreting studies connected with innuendo before, and I'm not sure I ever will again. Oh, <laughs> so, that's what this podcast is for, Jonathan. Why bother with research? Uh, the main thing that I put is that interpreting at the moment faces 
some of its biggest challenges yet. So we have machine interpreting technology, we have remote interpreting, we have issues with rates, we have issues with status, we have issues with being replaced by non-professionals, we have issues with <coughs> strikes. And the, the answers that people are looking for to these questions we can't find them by just saying, well, that's the way we've always done it. And we can't just go up to the, the people buying machine interpreting and say, hello, loser, you're making the wrong decision. Actually, we need to have an informed scientific opinion. And in, on a good day, that's what research is about. Um, and even something as basic as, you know, how do we train interpreters to still give good service when you have all these challenges going on? That's something that researchers look at routinely. Um, and although I know there are issues with research that we'll cover in a minute, I think actually, uh, unless we are a little bit naive, I think we need to accept that research is going to play an important part in the future of interpreting. In fact, without good research, interpreting might not have a future. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Although some people, I don't know if that's still the case, but yeah. at least when I was at university, some people would say that interpreting research isn't actually research. <laughs> or, you know, cobbled together from different disciplines. Like there's a bit of linguistics and a bit of, I don't know, communication, that kind of thing. Uh, sociology. I don't know. What, what yeah. would you say to those people? It's research for a given definition of research. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I, 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 okay. We, there are two things going on there. One, and I'm beginning to become critical of this, interpreting studies is a little bit of a... Um, it, it's a discipline that picks up anything we can pick up. Mm. Um, we kind of recycle theories and try to use them. Now, that's had its benefits because we wouldn't have discovered a lot of the things we've discovered without being able to just pick up stuff from anywhere we feel like. That's right. It's On the other hand, I think we're now getting to the point where that's becoming an issue. Um, I think I talked about this on the, the, the podcast, with the episode with Caroline Lear, is that now we've got to the point where our theories are a little bit like um, someone's garage that they haven't been in for kind of 20 years and they've just, you know, every few months they throw something else in there that they don't know what to do with in the house mm. and the garage is just chock full. Um, and I remember having this conversation with my supervisor during my PhD saying we need to actually sort out which of these theories are useful and which aren't. And it's an incredibly controversial thing to say and an inc incredibly co controversial research program to do, but I think as much as anything else, for the sake of our link between interpreting research and the profession, we need to be brave enough to go, yeah, that doesn't work. And not just because of fashion, because of actual data. Mm -hmm. um, too, too often we've had theories abandoned just because they're not fashionable anymore. And I'm sorry, guys, that's not science. That's just nonsense. Yeah. But I think <laughs> it kind of illuminated the, the sort of the two sides of the medal when it comes mm. to interpreting research being either called non-scientific or maybe call it multidisciplinary or whatever you want to call it. So it has its, mm, that's its the word. pros and cons because the pros are that you can sort of pick from different fields that, that are relevant and then you can mm. sort of smash it together and make it into something interesting. On the other hand, as, as you said, you know, not everything that gets coupled together may fit together or may stand the test of time. So there's probably both upsides and downsides to that. Well, I mean, there's a basic thing. So for a long time, even in a sense, the present day um, interpreting studies, people in community interpreting have borrowed from the work of uh, Erwin Goffman, who is, was a very good performance theorist, stroke social scientist. He wrote a book called The Self in Everyday Life, has become incredibly influential um, when people are looking at, you know, what role is an interpreter playing? And then you realise that actually the... You have to be very, very careful with that because there seems to be a suggestion that largely those those roles are freely selected. 
So, the, you know, someone is choosing to be a waiter and when they're a waiter, they know that they, there's a role of the waiter for them to play. Um, personally, I think I have issues with that because I think there are far more constraints on interpreting than that theory allows for. I also think our roles are far more porous than most of our discussions on, you know, footing in interpreting studies. I think our roles are a lot more porous and bleed into each other a lot more. Um, and so I'm actually quite ha a lot happy with some of the older performance theory. There's a great quote that I found in, that I used in my thesis from uh, Richard Schechner, which says, when you're performing, you're both not you because you're away, aware that you're performing a role, mm. but not, not you because you're aware that as a person, you still have a responsibility to be ethical and there's still someone behind the mask. Mm. Um, and I found that far more useful to describe what I was seeing in my own practice and in my thesis than this kind of footing thing of however many different roles Goffman talks about, you know, which one are we in now? I feel really uncomfortable with that easy division of the world up into subcategories. I don't think interpreting works like that. Yeah, it's, I guess it's messier than that. Maybe oh. let's put a pin in the whole performance thing. That's, that's interesting, but I wanted to get something else. Uh, before just talking about interpreting research in general. Now, um, the two Alexes on this podcast are usually considered the sort of the practitioners, whereas you are more more firmly based in in research, also in in practice, of course. But uh, given the mm. and everything and and the books, so so I'm curious, Alex, did, did you have any proper inter interpreting research lectures, anything of that sort during your university studies in in uh, Germany or the UK? We. Well, not in Germany. Uh, there was more vocational training. Um, but in the UK, we had a theory of interpreting uh, class, which wasn't so much about us doing the research and more about a learning research that has already been established. Um, and in the end, at the end of the day, it was more about preparing us to write our, our uh, dissertation, hmm. um, which obviously for a lot of people who like myself, hadn't had a lot of that, that preparation beforehand. That was a very crucial class because as those who've done it know that writing a dissertation or a thesis or even an essay that is, that is longer two, than two pages and actually has sources in it and makes sense is it's quite yeah. something. Um, so we had that. Um, Do you remember any of it? I mean, the sort of the content, the things they were telling you about <laughs> Sorry to put that you is on a trick question. No, I mean, <laughs> of course, I remember everything, and we had the best lecturer in that in that class. But uh, I just find it the, the reason why I'm not the biggest fan of research is because I don't know how to how it applies to my everyday life, and I, I oftentimes feel like it's just in a in a very abstract sphere that is just somewhere out there, which I'm. And I always feel like, obviously, research makes sense. There wouldn't be any progress in the world if nobody did re any research and everybody just kind of worked on their own thing. But I find it, it just kind of floats out there. And I, I, for me, it's just very intangible. I can't do anything with it. And for me, it's just very ethereal. <laughs> I think this comes back to, I mean, I'm going to be mentioning him a whole lot in this episode. But um, my supervisor, Graeme Turner, came up with this idea that if you're researching a group and your research is dependent on getting data from them, then your research should be done on them, for them, and with them. Uh, he borrowed that from uh, wider from sociolinguistics. And it's a great idea. So the, the kind of research that I want to do more of and the kind of research I'm really interested in is when you're actually catching something that people are interested in already. So, for example, um, 
people are already interested in, you know, what are my clients expecting me to do? Well, actually, that's something that you can research really practically. And I tell people that my thesis changed my business strategy overnight because I would I am now able to look at a client and how they're approaching me and begin to classify them according to the the theory that I worked out in my PhD. And it seems to be helping in that I can see from quite early on, you know, what kind of client is this? Where am I going to stand with them? You know, and you, you you build up an approach and you see that there are different kinds of clients in the world. Um, there's also been research where people have come to research and have said, we've got this problem, how do we fix it? That's incredibly practical research. One of Graham's favourite lines was, there's nothing more useful than a practical theory. <laughs> and I think, actually, <laughs> there are such things as practical theories. They are there. I think the best way to teach interpreting theory is with real-life examples. Um, so don't just say, you know, this is hypertext corpus theory. Sit down and go, okay, you've got a conference on something, right? Let's talk through how this theory would apply there. And then when people see it concretized, nice academic work, when people see it worked out in everyday life, you understand it better. And I find that my practice has changed according to the way that I've seen research develop. I, I think about interpreting completely differently than I did even three, four years ago. Yeah. So why does nobody do that? Why does nobody just sit down and like actually break it down for peasants like myself? Well, funnily, we're doing it right now. So there are... um, This is an intervention. So so my my first book tried to do that with some theory. Now, the restriction is is that I was writing a specific... I, I had a very specific aim in mind for that book. Um, and so I couldn't cover the entire breadth, but there is a book to be written. I mean, there could be like a practical version of Franz Hacker's book, Introducing Interpreting Studies, which is a wonderful research book. But yeah, it, it would be possible and quite doable to sit down and go, right, let's talk about neutrality. Let's talk about what researchers have found in neutrality. Let's talk about real life interpreting, because, you know, the majority of research on interpreting neutrality was done at real interpreted events. You can't get more, much more practical than interpreters watching interpreters interpreting at a real life event and going, that doesn't look like it, it says it should in the textbooks, mm-hmm. and, and talking about that. Um, that's why I'm a field researcher, because field research is necessarily practical. You can't not be practical when you're in the field going, oh, why has that happened? Um, it's And so, yeah, the, thank you for giving me another book idea. I'll be writing a proposal for religion in the next few weeks. <laughs> no, but but, but the, there, is, there is a book idea to be done for someone to sit down and go, there's a breadth of stuff here. Let's talk about neutrality in real life. Let's talk about Scopus theory in, in real life. Let's talk. And as you do that, you start to see where the weaknesses are. As soon as you imagine how this stuff would work in a real event, a good interpreter would go, yeah, but life doesn't work like that. And the researchers would go, yes, we know. Come and help us get a better theory. That's what we should be doing. Yeah. So how could, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to the solving problems part later. <laughs> we, maybe we, we should stick with the uh, perceived actual problems uh, of research. So we, we've seen now that, that one of the issues is that um, many interpreters would say that research has nothing to do with their everyday practice, which is probably a perception and maybe not necessarily true um and i think an, another uh, reproach that i've had recently with research and we talked about this jonathan in another context which i forget right now is that research is i think necessarily very slow because of things like uh you know you need to 
you need to prepare your study, you need to have, you need to collect data, you have to evaluate the data, you go through peer review and all that kind of thing. So um, it's kind of necessarily slow, or is it, Jonathan? Right. So there are different definitions of slow. Okay, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, in 2012, oh my goodness, that's a long time ago. 2012, I sat down and wrote a chapter of my thesis. And all the chapter was, was what do we know so far about client expectations of, and I concentrated on conference interpreters at that point. And so what I did was I spent a month or so looking up all the research I possibly could on expectations of conference interpreters and sat down and wrote the chapter. Uh, about a month after I wrote it, I presented it to my supervisors at a supervision meeting. This is still fairly early 2012. And Graham and Svenja said to me, we think this chapter is good enough. We think you should send it out for publication. So I contacted the journal, uh, sent, sent it out to the journal. The journal sent it out for review. I kid you not, it appeared in print in 2015, two years after it had been approved for publication. Yeah, I, uh, I believe that straight away because I'm in a similar situation with a paper that I've written with a few colleagues, which is yeah. technically still in review. So, oh, yeah. so on the other hand... Um, I saw an article in, in the number one interpreting journal in the world, which is called Interpreting, International Journal of Research <laughs> and Practice in Interpreting, co-edited by one of my research heroes, Franz Pilhacker. Um, and I saw an article in there that I vehemently disagreed with. It was in the discussion section, so I emailed him and said, Dear Professor Pilhacker, because he was my external examiner, so I still have to respect him. And I said, can I write a response to this? He said, sure. So I wrote a response to it, and that appeared in print like three, six months after I, I sent it. So it really depends on the journal. I think there are yeah. two things. Ro robustness, which is what we call doing it right, that takes time. It will take, you know, from plotting a study, let's not count the getting funding thing, that's a whole other question. But from planning a study to gathering the data to analysing the data, you're talking about at least a year to 18 months, because to do a study well, you've got to have shed loads of data. And then you've got to go through it. That's a technical um, term, by the way. Yeah, shed loads. That's, you know, <laughs> shed loads? <laughs> you, you measure the quality of your thesis by how many sheds of data you have. <laughs> I think it was like 0 0.91 shed. <laughs> um, but then it, I, I went deep rather than wide. There you go. Um, so that, that takes time. But on the other hand, what could be quicker is if we were to adopt what the hard sciences have and do what's called preprint which in the hard sciences, they prepare a paper or go straight to a, a preprint server. And before it even goes to peer review, people are already judging it and saying things about it and reading it. Mm -hmm. Now, there are dangers with that because, you know, some journalists look at preprint servers and don't realize they haven't been peer reviewed yet and think it's automatically mm -hmm. great, mm -hmm. which is a problem. Um, but on the other hand, it's a great way of getting research out there quicker. And there is an argument, if you put it on a preprint server and let anyone judge it, or at least anyone who registers for the site judge it, you're actually going to get better quality than waiting six months for a couple of professors somewhere to review it. Mm. Because instead of getting two pairs of eyes on it, you've now got a couple of hundred. Yeah, you're basically crowdsourcing the solution. Yes. Well, not now, the solution, but like the feedback. Yeah, so like in the hard sciences, sometimes they have peer review and uh, they have preprint. And if it gets a good preprint result, then it goes to peer review in a major journal. Now, I'm sorry, anything that gets through that is doing pretty well. Um, but yeah, so, so I have suggested to people, do we need preprint for interpreting? Mm 
Um, and the, the reactions have been mixed, but I think we do need to talk about this because, you know, the, the thing with like machine interpreting, the profession is not going to wait for three, four years where we go through the, the scientific publication schedule. It, by then, it's yeah. too late. So we need to figure out a way of how do we get robustness and safety, if you like, and not prejudice quality, but speed up to meet the challenges that are speeding up to meet us. Um, there are It's more difficult than it looks, but I think it is something that if we put our heads together, we could say, actually, maybe we should do like a pseudo, well, not pseudo, a semi-academic server where, mm. you know, while you're waiting for the paper, the data is available to everyone with a little summary. I don't know. There must be some way of making it available so the profession can go, yeah, nice idea, but, or can say, we love that. Can we use that? You know, mm. what, what better stamp on your research than professionals saying, we love that piece of work. Can we use it today? Yeah, I think there were a lot of points in there that are maybe worth unpicking. I mean, one mm. one is the, the whole question of access to results of scientific work and mm. open access mm. and everything, yeah. which is a difficult topic, which does not belong in this podcast, I think. Um, you know, <laughs> I have views. <laughs> I can imagine. So do I. But the whole question of accessing scientific work that was done using taxpayers' money, and then, you know, it's a big company, a big publishing house that makes money with access. Anyway, that's not the topic. Yeah. Um, but I think there were two other things that we've noted down as well as, as issues with research. One is terminology, weird terminology, you know, which is kind of a necessity in research, of course, there's a jargon to it. And then the whole field of um, writing about research, communicating research, both from the scientific community, but also from media in general. Um, and my impression, at least, is, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that there isn't much reporting going on about interpreting research. So I don't see in the sort of big industry publications that are intended for practitioners. So I'm not talking about meta or interpreting or, yeah. or like that. There isn't much going on, I think, or not enough, uh, where you know new results from interpreting research are presented and explained to lay people so that it's actually useful and where you, again, can then put it into practice or at least feel that it's more relevant to your everyday work. So not necessarily with new work, but I have, um, for those of you listening, I have an ITI bulletin in my hands. I have a permanent column in the ITI bulletin of Algarve Courier where I try to do something like that. Uh, new research access has its own issues, so I will tend to pick out either something that's thematic. So I think in the, what is this? This is the uh july august issue i've got an article here um basically saying that the hype around machine translation is a bit like the wizard of oz and uh, you know kind of pulling back the curtain on all of that um and so it really depends now the problem is is that on the one hand we we do want more research summaries. Daniel Gilles has the Seren Bulletin, which for academics is a goldmine. And not only for academics, yeah, it's quite yeah. interesting for lay people too. There's a real need for more of this kind of summarizing, and I'm I'm in the background working on a project on that at the moment, which I can't say anything about. Um, it's a long-term yeah. project, so I'm not actually doing any work on it. I've just got the idea and I'm talking to someone. <laughs> um, but yes, they, they are, there is at least one project in the pipeline to improve that. Now, the problem is, again that if you start saying, okay, we want to know what is new in research, well, the thing is, is that what is new in research in any kind of three to six month period, it could just be researchers discussing things among themselves, getting the technical details of something right. Um, and there is a need for that because if researchers get our methods wrong, we screw up the study, the research is no good. On the other hand, what could be new is, you know, we've got a ton of new results on, I don't know, um, conference interpreters' memory. 
Well, mm. one of the things that we know about research that the public tends not to know is no study is ever final. So I was reading today on the BBC that they've changed their mind on whether you should be taking uh, omega-3 supplements for your heart. They've now found out actually the effect is negligible. Uh But, you know, if you were doing a watch new research every, I don't know, six months or three months, and you said, you know, watch new researchers, every interpreter should be taking omega-3 for their heart. Well, the advice, advice might change in six months. Yeah. So it, it's the it's the putting things in perspective and saying there's a difference between this is a really cool, interesting result, and we're confident enough about this that we're you know it, it, it's pretty much proven. So I would draw a difference between I don't know. Um, uh, does this particular tool make interpreters more effective? That's at the moment for all of the tools we've got. That's kind of a we've got results at the moment, but we need more testing versus. Mm. Uh, does neutrality have any uh, is neutrality a valid term? We're pretty sure it's not. And we've had enough work over like the past twenty odd years that you know most researchers would turn around and go neutrality and invisibility. They're not really useful. Mm. Um, but that's two different things. You know, one's taken us twenty odd years to get to, and the other ones have got what, three four years of work on some of the new interpreting tools. If that, yeah. there's no way we can be sure after that amount of work. Mm. But coming back to the to the question of terminology, I mean, Alex, as an interpreter, you often have to deal with, you know, weird terminology and jargon and that kind of thing. Do you, do you find, I don't know how much exposure you have to interpreting research, but do you find it <laughs> particularly difficult to get into? Or uh, I do. I, I don't know who put yeah. this in, in the script here. I think it was me. Yeah, that was, that was me. I actually put <laughs> okay. in that I find interpreting research rather inaccessible because, and, and I think that actually speaks to the terminology part, but also, Jonathan, what you, what you were just discussing, the, 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 the access to summaries or, or I don't know, um, because it, believe it or not, there was actually a time when I was quite interested in interpreting research, but <laughs> the, the number one problem that I found was that if you Google interpreting research, mm. all you find is articles on how you interpret mm. research results of yeah. like whatever. So until you actually land at interpreting research pertaining to conference interpreting or legal or whatever, yeah. that takes mm. a while. So once you're there, it's behind a paywall usually, but that's, again, the different topic. So what you get is usually an abstract. And honestly, oh. I found that abstracts are just about the worst thing that you can yes. do. If I'm really interested in a topic, let's say I want to desperately read something on neutrality and I get an abstract and then they've pumped the abstract so full with like the most biggest words that they can think of to make it sound as fancy as possible, telling me exactly zero about what this is actually going to be about. And even if I were to pay for the thing, then I actually don't get just like a glimpse of it. So basically yeah. I, what I want is, you know, the proverbial iceberg when you just have like the tip yeah. of it, I want to get the tip of the iceberg. But what I get is just like the tip top peak yeah. of the iceberg with the abstract. That's not going to tell me anything. And if I take it one step further, I'll get the whole iceberg. And I don't want that either. So it's either you get nothing or you get way I, too I much. And that's, why I'm, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why I think it's just like in a, inaccessible to me. I, so I would like to get like a two-page summary that tells me like enough to that that tells me enough that if I'm actually interested, then I can actually go on and read the whole piece of work. Because obviously, if you're super interested in something, yeah. you would want to get all the background and you would want to read all the different sources. But then, if I'm not interested, I can actually also save relatively safely. I've read these two pages on topic X. Yeah, not my cup of tea. Whereas if you read the abstract, you don't know anything. 
So you want a few ice cubes, basically. Well, well yeah, exactly. The, I want like a, I want like a nice big glass of ice cubes. Well, so one of the things that I've spotted in medical research is really cool is they have the abstract from nerds. And there's an art to writing a truly useless abstract. And I have seen oh, some yes. really useless. Even as an academic, I look at some abstracts and go, so what you're saying is I threw a bunch of terminology up in the air and waited until it landed and then wrote my abstract. Yeah. Um, like they just so, throw it at the wall, see what yeah. sticks and then scrape it off in the abstract. Yeah. So, so there's a general rule that the, the more crazy terms you see, the less useful the research, especially in the first kind of abstract and paragraph. But anyway, um, one of the things they've done in some medical journals, which I would like to start a Troublesome Terps campaign to get um, our publishers to do this, is as above the abstract, they have a four or five bullet point executive summary in layman's terms. So I would like to, to start a Troublesome Terps campaign that every <laughs> interpreting journal, I'm and I know, I know a few editors, we could, we could, we could push them towards this. Um, I would like us to start the Troublesome Terps executive summary campaign. That, cool. as well as having your academic That's abstract, big. every journal has four or five bullet point, no more executive summary. What did your paper do? What did you find? Why is it interesting? Written for people who don't understand the terminology. Written for me. Yeah, you know, write your summary for for Alex G. You know, <laughs> research for Alex G. We would be like, we, like we should take your picture right now and make it the front. You do like a confused face on the video, right? So, so you you do a confused face. We'll make this the episode like um, screen thing, mm. and we'll do the Alex G campaign for understandable research because there is no need for re- okay. Some of the terminology is needed, okay? Some of it I get. Um, some of it, you're like, okay, I'll, I'll let you have. Sometimes you go, I'll let you off with that because I know that the culture you come from, it's perfectly acceptable to coin a new term when you don't really need one. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and I, I've done that a couple of times myself. Mm. But you should try to make your terminology fairly transparent. So, for instance, we do not need the terms, three terms to describe the gap between the speaker something, saying something and the, the interpreter saying it. We have decalage, lag, and EVX. Voice, then, yeah. Why? <laughs> mm. it may, they all mean the same thing. Lag probably is not never going to be academic because it's only three letters, and why would an academic use a three-letter term? Décalage sounds cool because it's French, but actually, the, probably the most accurate is EVS, um, and probably the best one to use. I would imagine the EVS is probably the most useful one because then, certainly from a scientific point of view, you Quite know exactly visual. what you. Yeah, it's efficient, and you know exactly what you're measuring. Yeah. Um, some of the terminology has been coined because the question has been, "Well, what are we measuring here?" And the next person who brings out a paper on quality without a definition of quality gets a slap. <laughs> don't get me started on <laughs> quality it's the yeah it's the whole, I don't know if it's even the holy grail it's kind of the the Loch Ness monster of interpreting it, studies or something people knew what the holy grail was <laughs> it yeah. cannot possibly be the holy grail of interpreting studies because we don't know what it is yeah. you know that's actually one of the fun parts about interpreting research that I've always been flabbergasted by because once upon a time I actually thought about doing a PhD just because I thought it would be cool to have it in you know to it's have cool. it in my title. It's pretty cool. Um, and then I did my thesis and I realized that I would don't ever want to do anything like that ever again. Just because it, it as you know, we've talked about it tonight, it, it takes forever. It, you need to work very thoroughly and read a bunch of stuff. 
that might not even be interesting or at the end of the day, not even help you at all in your, in your mission. It's, cold, it's like prepping for a job. It's exactly the same feeling. No, it's <laughs> not. And that's exactly the thing that I'm always been flabbergasted by is that interpreters who usually are all about, you know, doing stuff fast. We have to react fast, think fast, think on our feet. And then you actually sit down and do like 12 months of like combing through journals and writing down stuff and like, Oh, I almost said acting like a translator, but you know, it's like defining <laughs> terminology. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm about to die of boredom here. So that, I've always but, honestly been fascinated that there's actually interpreters out there who enjoy doing that kind of stuff. And I'm thankful that there are because it's sure as hell as in me. So I'm really glad that it's somebody else who enjoys it. But so, okay, I would liken it to this. Um, every time, every interpreting job I've ever done, I've come across that annoying term that has three or four different versions in the target language. Oh yeah. Now, one of the things that you 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 realize is you know maybe you come across I don't know wheel or something and you go okay, well our minds in the booth are instantly going well what type of wheel is this and in our research we'll have had to have gone okay there are four ways of translating whatever this term is, we need to know when you use each of these four, so that we use them right, and it's the same process in interpreting research is that I'm not naturally a really tiny detail person, but I do when when I'm sitting doing a study I go okay. I need to know what these, which which of these terms are you, I use when, so I use them right. Um, and then it's things like, okay, if I want to measure, so I was measuring client expectations, I very quickly came across this problem of, if you're measuring client expectations, is that the same as measuring what they think of the interpreting after they've heard the interpreter? Well, it's probably not, because if you want their expectations you're assuming that they're coming to the event thinking, this is what I want the interpreter to do. Mm, yeah. Whereas if you're coming to them afterwards and say, what should an interpreter be like? The result has been diluted by what they've just seen. Um, and and that, that's a really simple example of if you're doing expectations, the fact that you've put the word expectations means that you have to do your research before the event or at least as early in the event as you can. And that itself has problems. And it's little things like that, whereas, you know, we would know as an interpreter, if you got the word expectations in English, I'm sure you would automatically think of, use a German word, which means something you come to the event with already in your mind. Mm. I, I automatically mm. know, that the French automatically comes into my head because I've said that so many times at academic events. <laughs> but, but you instantly, so your brain is doing this process when you're interpreting just a lot quicker and with a lot less kind of guardrails in place. Whereas when you're doing it in interpreting studies, you're thinking, actually, okay, I have this thing that I want to discover. How do I name that so that people know exactly what I mean and so that there's no room for people to go, there's no room for people to argue with you over what you actually found. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like a lawyer setting out a case. Is how do I how do I push people into the idea that this is the only or at least the main reasonable argument for what I've found? Hmm. It's a bit like framing almost, no? Yeah. 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 But it's funny that you mentioned the, the Nobel Prize because as far as I know, I mean, there certainly is no Nobel Prize for interpreting research, <laughs> but is there anything else that, that could be called the Nobel of interpreting research? I, I'm so not aware of anything. The, the nearest I've seen, and it's not strictly a research prize, is the Prix Denise, Denise Seleskovich. That's more of okay. a Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. Mm. Um, personally, I would like to see a prize for the best practical research and interpreting. 
Um, and I would go to someone from the sign interpreting scene because I'm very impressed with how they kind incredible. of combine research, training, community yes. work, political work. It's quite impressive, and especially in Scotland. So uh, yeah, that's all. Um, now, the, the interesting thing there is that I have a cheeky saying that if you want to know what researchers and spoken language interpreters are going to be talking about 10 years' time, you see what the same language interpreting people are talking about now. Yeah, completely so, agree. So where we were still all going conduit modeling, interpreters just say what the person said and let's see how quickly they can say whatever, you know, testing for accuracy and all this, hmm. they were already talking about the ethical decisions that interpreters are making. Hmm. And, and I kid you not, until... 2004 2005 there were still people going around saying well conference interpreters don't really have the same kind of ethical issues as court interpreters and community interpreters and you know all of this active interpreter stuff doesn't apply in the booth and then you see the research from people like Ebru Dedeker um there's a whole load of people more than beaten there's a whole load of people who went ah yes actually there is um it may be that our ethical decisions aren't the same ones. Of course, they're not going to be the same ones as someone watching someone die on a hospital ward. Mm. But we're doing ethical decision-making all the time. Um, Basic things like, you know, imagine you have a speaker who has said something offensive but didn't mean to. Mm. And Mm. you realise that if you simply relay what he, and it's always a he, if you simply relay what he (laughs) said, the the meeting will go south. Yeah. And everyone knows the first rule of confidence interpreting is if the meeting's going bad, who are they going to blame? Oh, yeah. We know how this one ends, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so but, so you then, you're, you're in this position and most interpreters that I've talked to, if you get them in the corner at a conference somewhere and they're not in front of people, you'll hear them talking about ethical decisions and they, they will, we all have our stories. Yeah. Um. But until Maybe we're of, framing them differently, or we, we yeah. think it's something else, but very often it's really bad ethics. Or we'll say things like, "It's what he meant to say." It's like <laughs> maybe. Yeah, so, so, so now I, I've become like some kind of psychic. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, let's just be. Let's just. So my my new catchphrase. I, I change my catchphrase every so often because people get bored with them. My new catchphrase is: interpreting is interpreting. <laughs> Wherever you are, interpreting whatever type of interpreting you're doing. It's interpreting. So therefore, at least as a starter, we can kind of imagine to begin with that if something applies in sign language interpreting, there is likely to be an equivalent or a parallel in conference interpreting, court interpreting, community interpreting, and likewise. Um, People are beginning to talk about how community interpreters do cognition. I'm like, (laughs) really? Okay. But that's how it goes. That's a good. That's a good segue, actually, because um, it, it's almost like what you said is um, that that there's kind of a, a basic uh, interpreting skill or a basic interpreting competency to use a, a posh word. Because when I uh, studied in Leipzig University, we had a professor who had developed this competence model, so uh, uh, an interpreting model that was based on different kinds of skills or competencies that you had as an interpreter. That kind of reminded me of that. But anyway, I was just abusing this as a segue to. <laughs> It's a <laughs> topic that we wanted to talk about, which is which is kind of um, to really just scratch the surface of some of the basic sort of models or concepts that exist in interpreting research, just to, I think, give people a few pointers where they can get started. Because if you just say, well, you should, or, or I'm interested in interpreting research, people maybe, you know, may not really know where to start. So maybe give them, give them a few pointers there. Um, so I, I don't know if I would 
point people to, to this particular model I was just talking about. I, there aren't an awful lot of publications about it, but there are certainly um, other models like um, the effort model from Daniel Gilles, which is yep. probably taught at most universities and which it, I don't know if there's a gold standard of interpreting models, but it's certainly a model that is used very often and which I used as well in, in my thesis. So I don't know, Jonathan, if you can give us it, kind of it's a, it's a So the effort models are excellent for teaching yeah. um, and they're excellent for kind of breaking down some of the component scales. Um, there's a really nice... Well, it's okay, it's not a nice big fight. There, there's kind of a fight going on about how empirically sound they are. But, you know, if anyone's doing a dissertation, you can do a dissertation looking at, you know, debates over the effort models. And that we, we really need more stuff on that. It's kind of Daniel Gilles versus uh, Killian Sieber from um, Geneva. It's a great, great debate to read. Um, as well as that, I would say really do read the stuff on uh, neutrality being dead. So Cynthia Roy, Cecilia Vadenshug, Graham, Graham Turner, I almost gave Graham a Swedish name there. <laughs> they're, they're great people to start with. Um, Graham Turner's work, if you can find it on his concept of real interpreting or quantum interpreting, is highly recommended. It takes a while to get your head around it, but it's worth it. Um, incidentally, all the neutrality is dead stuff is in chapter one of my first book, or the majority of it is. Um, I would also suggest... Um, I have put my paper called Finding and Critiquing the Invisible Interpreter for free online with permission. It's called a preprint. So it, it's in interpreting, but I got permission to put a preprint. Look that one up and you'll get kind of a, a very, very quick summary of the whole neutrality, invisibility thing. It's worth reading. It's worth knowing about. Um, Elizabeth Tesselius' work on expertise Again, it's one that's being debated, but I would say it's another debate that interpreters should know about and should look at. Um, I would highly recommend her thesis, which again is free. Um, Franz Pohacker's work on Scopus theory and interpreting, I tested in my thesis. Um, despite my results, I would still say it's worth reading. And there's, he's got a paper on media interpreting. I would say, imagine that it's just interpreting in general and kind of try to get as many of his papers on Scopus theory and interpreting as you can, when you crack the code of some of the terminology he's using, it becomes really interesting and really helpful. And also, if you come across anything on norms, we're beginning to wake up to them in interpreting studies. There's been some good work going on. Definitely worth doing that. And one last one for the basics. Uh, <laughs> for the whole video remote interpreting thing, there's a project called the Avidicus Project run yep. by Sabine Brown. If you're, in, if you're considering doing that work, I would ask you, borderline beg you, to read as many of those papers as you can. Sabine herself has written a really excellent summary, which is available for free. Yeah. So those are the kind of basics for practicing interpreters. But I would say, for me, that the number one stuff that I think helps a lot is the stuff on the end of neutrality from kind of Cynthia Roy all the way through to my own recent paper. It's going to take you a while to get through it all. Hmm. But by the time you get through it all, it's so worth it because you suddenly go, actually, now I get it. Um, yeah, it yeah. also sounds like it's very practical and, and something that could be potentially yeah. useful that you could kind of try to integrate into your work or that, that could help sort of explain your own work <laughs> to yeah. yourself. Well, oh, if, if you're a conference interpreter, there's a really, 
there's a really nice book which is actually very well written by a lady called Ebru Derricker. Its title is stupidly long, so we'll put it in the show notes. Um, if you can get a copy of that book, it's definitely a book that that really deserves to be read. And we'll put all the links to this stuff in, in the show notes that you can get as much as you can. Warning, you will have to pay for the books. I had an email, I've had several messages from people on academia.edu saying, I saw you've got a book, can I get a copy? And my answer has always been yes. There's an amazing service called Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Try it sometime. <laughs> so yeah, most of these books are available on Amazon or somewhere. Um, and maybe if we sweet talk John Benjamin to make it a discount, I doubt, I doubt it, but we can try. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> there's, there's one that I would recommend actually, which is called the Interpreting Studies Reader. Yes, uh, which is edited by Franz Buschacker and Miriam Schlesinger, um, and it contains a lot of, uh, I guess, essays or mm. contributions from, you know, all the big names in interpreting research. Um, so there's there's Chernoff, Gilles, of course. Um, Russell had teams and Ian Mason since we were talking about Adam Brother, uh, Lederer, Moser Mercer, and so on. So lots of interesting yeah. stuff. Uh, well, and then this one, of course. <laughs> yeah, there's a really good book to pick up. So everything that I've talked about, we'll put all the links in the show notes. But if you yeah. want kind of the one book guide to interpreting studies, um, Franz Prohacker recently brought out a new edition of his book, Introducing Interpreting Studies. And it takes you through all of the main stuff that's happened. and it's great because he's written it. I don't know if he meant to. He almost wrote it like a small textbook. Um, and so it's immensely readable. It's not the kind of book that you're going to sit down in, in an armchair and read with a cup of coffee. But it is the kind of book where you can go, hold on a minute. Um, so, for instance, a lot of interpreters have complained about, you know, um, I can't remember now. Yeah, that idea of, I can't remember now, words in your head and you can't find it. Well, you open his stuff on what we've learned about interpreter cognition. Hmm. And literally, you you can like put you could put tabs in the book and say, right, I want to read about what do we know about how interpreters' brains work. Okay, now I want to read about what do I know about community interpreting, and you can tab the book out like that, and he'll give you like a three four page summary of all of these things in a single book, and it's written without with as little of the jargon as possible. I will give him his due; he's a superb writer of that kind of accessible research. We need to have him on the shows on the show sometime, I think. That's you know, like um, kind of book. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I actually <laughs> went out. <laughs> I already had the first edition and when the second edition came out, I bought the second edition as well. That's true dedication. Um, yeah, I, I almost, almost took my copy of the first edition to my viva to ask him to sign it. <laughs> but I thought that would be kind of sad. Um, so, so, you <laughs> know, Fra Franz, if you're listening to this, can you sign my second edition, please? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll get him too. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I, I wanted to say that, that I, th I think at least one of the ideas of this podcast was always to to talk a little bit about, about interpreting research. And maybe, maybe we should do that a little bit more and trying to get people on or, or discuss some of the, you know, more recent um, discoveries maybe in interpreting research, like the whole neutrality thing, um, and try to make it a little bit more approachable to people. So, so one of the things that I didn't realize until I did my PhD is that interpreting researchers are great at falling out with each other. Sorry, having <laughs> academic debates. Um, so, for instance, after all, 
Yeah, so like in the 90s, there was a massive debate between Delia Chiaro and Franz Prohacker, which you can, all the papers are available for free, you can look them up. And it's, it's a lovely debate in the uh, pages of the Interpreter's Newsletter. It's an incredibly nerdy methodological debate, but it's a fun one. And now there's still a debate going on between Daniel Gilles and uh, Killian Sieber, who are mm. both quite charismatic people, both <laughs> super intelligent. Um, and, you know, the, some of these debates, you think, you know, as a practicing interpreter, why would I care about the debate over the effort models? Well, actually, it's saying something about how we work. And if one of them is right, it's saying something quite profound about interpreting and it's stuff that we're, we're going to be able to apply to our work in, to our work in the future. Hmm. And, you know, there's always a chance we've been doing it wrong for all this time. Um, oh, which, no. But, it is, but, but this it's is the mad. thing. But, well, this is the problem with research is that, you know, you can spend like 20 years looking at something and then some jerk PhD student comes along <laughs> and goes, yeah, but it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, any anyone can wreck anyone's theory. It's a massive free for all. It's like a wrestling match. Sometimes anyone can wreck anyone's theories. Uh, you know, we we're talking about a flat hierarchy in in the interpreting profession. In a way, it's like that in interpreting studies because you can mess up someone's theory. Sometimes <laughs> meaning to, <laughs> sometimes not meaning to. Yeah. But yeah, so it's, this is the. So there's a whole load of books to recommend. Um, my own book, I've done my best to make... It's not all interpreting research in there. I've, I've done my best to make it accessible. Let, let's say we're going to make research more accessible. Um, and I, I would say part of the why bother question involves researchers themselves changing the way that we do business. Um, and I'm all for Graham Turner's on, for, and with approach to research. It's harder. It makes life so much more difficult for researchers but it pays off in the long run because you end up with better research. Yeah. But since you talked about that nasty PhD student, we don't even have to go that far because there's a lot of people out there, and I think a lot of them are listening to this very podcast as well, who are doing research at university um, in the form of a master's thesis or something like that. And I think we've all come across the situation that we get an invitation to participate in a, mm. in a survey or in a question. So I don't know if we want to discuss this real quick before we, uh, before we finish off this episode. But can, can I let you to go first? Because I have a lot to say about this. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's probably, that probably is a lot to be said. Um, and if I think back to my own survey, it was probably, no, it was definitely terrible from a scientific point of view. <laughs> oh, yeah, mine too. <laughs> I thought I was being so smart. I think, yeah, but I think we all have to do them. So, so I don't know if, if, there's a, if there's a good resource out there that the people could go to, although ideally they would get their training from their professors or from their university, you know, the, the sort of basic toolbox that they need to, to get a proper questionnaire going. I don't know. Right, okay. <laughs> Off we go. Right. I was going to let Alex Gansmeyer go first because I, I need to work out how to make this not a rant. Okay, can glass someone full of write, ice cubes, Jonathan. Glass full of ice cubes. <laughs> can, can someone like chuck a message in the chat box saying no rant, please? So <laughs> first things first, uh, no survey is any better than your sampling. So for example, and this is a really silly example, Someone being a member of a Facebook group with the word interpreting in the title <laughs> does not make them an interpreter. 
literally anyone can join and anyone can pretend, you know, there's a, a, an old story on the internet, or an old saying on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. That's true. Yeah. If, you, if you're sampling by dropping a, a survey into Facebook groups, literally anyone can respond to that. Okay? Yeah. Not a good idea. Okay, let's get on to the second thing. For academic research, you should not be using Google Forms as a survey tool. Now, people look at me when I say that and go, why? Okay, because... Google Forms are not very secure, so if you're asking people emails for follow-up, it's not a good place to put them. GDPR. GDPR. It also looks garbage. And also there are perfectly lovely, much better survey tools that are free that you can use online. Your university has access to stuff as well. I was going to say university usually is. Yeah, yeah universities have access to those things. Yeah. Um, and also, like, doing a good survey is really, really, really hard. I mean, one of the hardest bits of my PhD was writing and analyzing the survey. Um, it's a method, the easiest kind of research to do is to do a survey. You're probably better off, and I say this advisedly, you're almost certainly going to be better off finding people who you know are interpreters and interviewing them. It's actually easier to do a semi-decent interview than it is to do a semi-decent survey. Much, much easier. Hmm. Um so you've got sampling, you've got do it on something that looks professional and actually has decent functionality. And the last thing that I would say is that you're gonna it's gonna be very difficult for you to get your questions good. Um there's a whole there's, so there's a book called Real World Research. Don't worry, I'll throw that in the, the show notes as well, which covers a lot of this stuff for social scientists. It's really, really good. Um it's a fat thing of a book um but you know so some of the basic things are for example um if you're doing a survey and your only analysis is to do how many people said yes and how many people said no it's not a good way of doing a survey is that not enough (laughs) bar charts um yeah so I mean, there are things that you can measure your stuff in survey so there are there are accepted ways to do a survey that you can read about in an hour um there's really no excuse for things like so I came across one survey I will not mention where no. it was it was not done by a master student which makes it even worse where the person where the re, the possible responses were yes yes sometimes or no <laughs> okay I have also seen surveys where like four of the po- so there's a very common survey technique in client expectation research when they ask people to mark how important is this on a scale of like zero to four. And it's like very important. And every single one is a level of important Mm. apart from zero until it's not important. And they wonder why everyone scores everything a four because your survey is biased, dude. Seriously, I wrote a paper on that. Garbage. So yeah, it's very, very... So if you're going to do a survey in your master's dissertation, Number one, probably don't. <laughs> okay. Very helpful. <laughs> okay. Like if you've, if you've got like a bachelor's in marketing, fine. Or if you've got access to a book like Real World Research that tells, tells you how to do it, fine. But if you're going to do it, really, really think it out carefully and think, you know, how am I going to do sampling well? And it could be that you do something as simple as look up when there's a, 
bar camp or a Falca Day meeting or an ITI meeting or an IEC meeting near you, drop a letter to the organiser and say, I'd love to come to this meeting because I'm a student. And while I'm there, I'd really love it if I could get some people to fill in a survey. Hmm. It's a far more legit form of sampling to say they're at, they've paid 100 euros to come to an event for interpreters. It's far more legit than to go, I went on a Facebook group called uh, Interpreters oh, yeah. and Bakers and I got my sample from there. Half of them might be bakers, half of the the other half are dogs, but who cares? <laughs> and it's like, seriously, you know, if it's a group on, you know, uh, interpret new to interpreting, please don't. <laughs> you know, it's just don't. Yeah. But yeah, so surveys are super hard to get right. And please don't do them until you, unless you have access to the very best tools to do them with and the very best methods to do them because they're really tough. And even P- I even know of at least one PhD thesis that has a critical methodolo- methodological error in the survey. Mm. That's how hard they are to get right. They're really hard. So maybe let's just say that I don't. mean we don't want to we don't want to discourage people from doing it altogether, but maybe take take them very very seriously and, yes. and get all, the, all the support that you can get. I guess. Yeah, I I would say if the person supervising your dissertation has experience with them, you're probably going to be okay. If you have access, if you have access to really good guidebooks, yeah. you won't find them in the interpreting study. Apart from Jemaine Napier's book, just don't do them unless you really know what you're doing, because we have we already have quite a lot of results where people have said, "Look, we did a survey on this," hmm. and then you go, "Yeah, but and there's nothing worse." Um, so I'm in the middle of writing a paper, and I have the horrible thing of writing a paper pointing out the flaws in work that some people spent like three, four years of doing. Mm. And it's a, again, it's a critical methodological flaw. It's not one you can ignore if you're doing an honest review. And I'm having to point to the fact that they are making a mistake that they wouldn't have made had they read any paper that came out after 2005. <laughs> okay, so uh, no one I, wants but to. To be, fa- to be fair, and I just want to say this again to the students yeah. who are listening. I know surveys are very tough, and you should really take them seriously. But sometimes you just have to do something. So yes, if you're writing yeah. your master's dissertation and you want to do a survey, take it seriously. But you, yeah. you can you can do a survey. We'll forgive you. See if you're doing your master's dissertation, and you say, "I'm going to conquer this survey thing." See to have really sound surveys. We ha- actually have very few. In the entirety of interpreting studies, I'm going to get hit for this, but we have very, very few really well done surveys. If you do a really well done survey at Masters, I will like send you a personal email saying, you're a genius, I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, so you have the Jonathan promise. For, for all intents and purposes, if you're, do, if you're listening to this, doing your, your Masters dis- dissertation, just think, if you, if you want to do the easy way, grab some data that someone else has already gathered or it's probably easier to do a good interview than a good survey. If you want to do a survey, go for it, but make sure it's like the best that your survey can be. It's going to take you a while, but you're going to come out of it going, I did an amazing piece of work and everyone's going to be so proud of you and we're going to love you. And there we go. Just always (laughs) consider WWJD. What would Jonathan do? (laughs) Oh, very nice. (laughs) And I would say as well, if you've done an amazing piece of interpreting research, uh, let us know about, you know, maybe yeah. we could discuss yeah. it on the 
show. That that could be interesting. Um, so, yeah. th so that's so we have the Jonathan promise. We have the troublesome turfs promise that we're going to cover more interpreting research and make it accessible to people. And, and we have the we have the troublesome turfs executive summary campaign. <laughs> that as well. I think that's that's pretty good. Uh, that, that needs a hashtag pretty good for one episode. I mean, guys. Yeah. Man. Exactly. The, the only problem is how many hashtags is this episode having by the time? At least like three, four. We'll see. <laughs> We'll put them all in the show notes. And speaking of show notes, of course, you can find all our episodes and um, all the links and book recommendations and so on and so forth. There's going to be a lot of that this time around, but you can find all of that on troubledherbs.com, of course. Have we forgotten anything important about research? Because otherwise... I, I, I am just going to say, if you're an amazing experimentalist and I haven't mentioned you, I'm really, really sorry. Um, I'm a field researcher, so I tend to automatically recommend the field research people. Um, yeah. So I, if I have forgotten your name and you're a world-leading interpreting researcher, I'm really, really sorry. But I can't remember everyone's name. And there are certain people who I just, I just really like their work. So if we didn't forget anything, we probably just had to cut it from the episode because of overtalk or interference or something. That's probably why the name isn't there. For technical reasons. Can I just say, just to make it clear, I am not the chairman of the Franz Bochacker fan club, no matter what my research friends say. But you could be. <laughs> Well, no, he doesn't even have a signed copy of the book. I know, it's horrible. <laughs> although, although Fans, I, I get in touch. <laughs> I, I, I am expecting that when we do the live show, every, like, everyone's going to want us to sign stuff. Usually like insurance waivers. <laughs> <laughs> that anyway, but since you mentioned the live event, I'm, uh, live event I'm just going to repeat that. That's going to be on the 17th of November Fair, in yes. London at the Roebuck Pub. Tickets are, I don't know if they're still available when this episode comes out. It's um, too late. Anyway, uh, there will be a live event, no matter what happens. <laughs> in, <laughs> uh, and again, so all the information on this episode and all the, the entire back catalog of early episodes can be found on troubleturps.com. Uh, get in touch uh, on the website or through social media with, pretty, with troubleturps. Pretty much anywhere, not on Instagram, but certainly on Twitter and Facebook. And um, that's it. Yeah. And um, can I just say, by the time this episode goes live, I will be a dad for the fourth time. So, you know. That is true. It's completely strange. Yeah. Send your congratulations now. If by any chance you like send me an email after this episode and the only response you get back is, it's because I haven't slept in a month. Okay. We'll talk to you next time, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. Gonna get some formal media training at some point. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like with 2,000 episodes, you probably should get a training in at some point. The three of us. 2,000 episodes? Oh, sorry, 2,000 dollars. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can you imagine us all with, with long beards and like grey hair? I already have grey. But yeah. with like long beards sitting in a rocking chair still doing TT episodes. Here's our troublesome terms live from the, the old folks' home for old interpreters. <laughs> We're going to be debating whether tablets in the booth will take off. <laughs> <laughs> the young ones are doing it all wrong nowadays. Should you be interpreting with false teeth? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I hate both of you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me that's going to be in the outtakes. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs>